You know something is wrong. You can see it all around you. You're wondering how things got to this point. Good is called evil and evil is called good. You want to truly know why we got to the brink of the abyss. Can't just be told. You must see it for yourself. I'm Scipio Eruditus, and this is Dispatches from Reality. Hello, hello, my dispatchers, my listeners. I am your author, your narrator, your host, Scipio Eruditus. And today's topic is one that I've been looking forward to addressing and a very necessary one to address. Uh, This is going to be one of those episodes and one of these essays that you're going to have to read a couple times. You're going to have to listen to it to fully digest uh, the totality of what's being presented here. Uh, But it is absolutely necessary to truly dissecting what has happened the last three years and really the last 100 years if we, uh, you know, as society has faced down uh, these uh, pandemics, quote unquote, uh, you know, back, back to back to back to back to back. And this is a, a business model that was conceived of long ago. And it is just a necessary shibboleth that must be slayed, right? And so that is primarily just the myth of virology, like so many other sciences. Uh, it's just, it is based upon some of the, I struggle to even call it science, honestly. There's absolutely no controls. There is assumptions based upon assumptions, reification fallacies. And I say this as someone who was what you would have generally considered a skeptic uh, earlier in my life. And I, you know, I bought the lies on vaccines and I bought the lies on so many of these other scientific narratives that are peddled in the mainstream. And it's not until you start, you know, reading the receipts yourself that you realize just how bankrupt so many of our sciences are today, uh, whether it's physics, uh, a cosmology, uh, virology, there are just so many arenas that have been utterly hijacked. You know, and we can thank the Rockefellers and their ilk for the current state of our, you know, our scientific and uh, educational discourse, but, you know, topic for another day. And so this subject, the subject of virology, of gene augmentation, there is, there's so many stories out here in the alternative media, right? And there's all these fantastical claims of, you know, our cells are becoming permanent spike protein factories, that the uncontrolled release of these technologies are turning all of our cells, you know, and fundamentally altering and changing the human genome uh, permanently, right? This is, I've seen this trotted out so much and so often. And there's really no other way to say it than it's just a, a giant load of crap. When you dig into the actual papers, particularly concerning the origins of uh, <laughs> co- you know, COVID or whatever the heck that was, it is when you cut through the, 
the maybes, the coulds, the possibilies, the potentialies, there is just a dearth of any legitimate proof that's not based upon faulty assumptions. And so the biggest of which is the PCR test. Uh, that's just something that anything that relies upon the PCR test, and unfortunately, you know, most of our medical diagnostics are based upon the PCR test. Uh, this is how we're testing for a variety of, you know, not just viral, but bacterial, uh, you know, the antibody test, quote unquote, the people, oh, well, you know, I know I had COVID because I had an antibody test. Well, the antibody test is a PCR test. And so we're all, all of these diagnostic uh, testing capabilities, it's all drinking from this poison well of the PCR. And so anything that is reliant upon that as your proof, oh, well, I found this. I mean, as the inventor, you know, there's a video linked in this article, the inventor of the PCR test, supposedly, Kerry uh, Mullis, has admitted openly and multiple times that the PCR test is not designed as a diagnostic tool. It never was. And depending on how often you, you know, you cycle this sample, you can find basically anything and anything, a small enough piece of something that will trigger this test. And this has been one of the most fundamental aspects of this entire deception, this entire, uh, you know, this entire psychological operation, which really looking back on it now, uh, I don't know how you can describe virology and a lot of the infectious disease theories as anything other than a psychological operation. Even Fauci has admitted publicly, I mean, there's a NIH scientific paper that he authored that talks about how pneumonia was the true, you know, bacterial pneumonia, mind you, was the true cause was something like 96% of the deaths during the Spanish flu was attributed to bacterial pneumonia. When you actually look at the, some of the, the cell cultures and the tissue uh, samples that were preserved from that time period, truly astounding the level of fraud that's been perpetrated against us just on a habitual basis. And, uh, I encourage you, please, do not take my word for some of this stuff. Go and look and read the the papers yourself. I mean, I'm not I'm not medically trained. I you know I am admittedly a layman on these things, but I'm, I'm a quick study, and you know they like to dazzle you with their four and five uh, syllable words. But when you dig past the language here and the technical nature of some of this stuff, and you're looking at what's actually being presented, I mean, it's just. It's staggering. It's really staggering how so much of this this storyline around gene therapies and the fundamental alteration of our DNA, it has just, I mean, it's just permeated the discourse. And there is, you know, as we'll discuss in this essay, it is, there's almost no proof for it. It's like, it's staggering. You know, if you don't have a PCR test, like if you take away the PCR test from being able to prove of the spike protein or it's in this cell or that cell or whatever. Well, I mean, dude, without this PCR test, these people have basically no proof. It's utterly shocking. You know, that's before we even get into the, the possibility uh, that, you know, this is even, this is even a, a physical thing that could happen, that our cells or our genome could be fundamentally altered in this way. There's a lot of technical hurdles that need to be overcome and, and have not been overcome, uh, at least in the public sector realm. You know, I guess there is the potential, as always, that there is, you know, technologies and other things are being hid from us. 
in regards to this arena. And I, I do believe that there is a, a great deal of technology that is hidden from us. Now, I've explored that in, in several of my other essays. Uh, there is a great deal of scientific discovery that has been secreted from the public. And so I do not discount that. Absolutely not. I do not discount that possibility. There is the potential for it. But if that was the case, we should be seeing a lot more proof outside of their PCR BS. And there's just not a whole lot of it. You know, and uh, another kind of thing, this is a admittedly a bit of a personal theory, but uh, from some of my reading of scripture and, you know, talking to some other, uh, you know, some of my other brothers in Christ on this uh, idea, it is it's quite interesting when you look at some of the verses that discuss childbirth and, you know, particularly Psalm 139, right, where it talks about, uh, you know, being curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That word for my substance yet being unperfect, that Hebrew word golem, uh, means embryo. And so, <laughs> in thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. That's uh, Psalm 139, verse 16. Now, this might be, you know, a bit, I admit this is, you know, a, a bit of a theory, but this book here, right, that's being discussed here, I, I think there's a very real potential that that is our DNA. And so, the only author that's capable of changing our book I believe is Jesus Christ. I, I, I don't believe that the enemy of mankind has the ability to alter ourselves in this fundamental fashion. And there's, there's absolutely no proof to demonstrate it. You know, again, I could be wrong. I could be, you know, this is admittedly, you know, maybe, a, maybe an erroneous connection on my part. I'll freely admit that. But as far as the proof of this of even being capable, it's just, it's utterly lacking. It's utterly lacking not to belabor the point here. So we will uh, get into some of the the further research uh, section, the articles. Now, not as many books for this one, uh, mostly a lot of scientific papers. So there's uh, about four papers here cited in regards to gene therapy and the current state of gene therapy, the history of gene therapy uh, for either you know mitochondrial diseases, for retinal dystrophy, because that's been some of the arenas that they have explored these technologies. And uh, yeah, it's not been great. <laughs> There's been a lot of problems. There's a lot of hurdles there. They've been touting these, this thing for a very long time, right? As you know, the, the wonder drug, the, the future of medicine, uh, that's been somewhat lacking. Now, on the other hand, nanotechnology has already shown and has already been demonstrated its capabilities of being used in the medical field that's been used in the medical field successfully for a very long time. Uh, I know there's a lot of commentators and a lot of uh, so-called uh, health freedom advocates who dismiss and poo-poo the notion of nanotechnology while you know, acting like it's not even real, that this is uh, all in our minds, that this is just, you know, are you just falling for another one of Langley's psyops? I mean, absolutely, someone here is falling for a psyop. But you can go back and you can look and you can go to basically any major university in America, and there are hundreds of PhD programs in a variety of nanotechnology fields. I mean, I think just for wide body area networks and, you know, the internet of things, there's like 200, over 200 PhD programs right now that you can go and, I mean, this is a very real 
technical field and a, a very real technology that has been demonstrated. You know, whether that's what we're seeing in the, you know, the jabs personally, that is, that is my opinion. Uh, and that is our hypothesis going forward here. And, you know, not just the jabs and all sorts of stuff. Now, unfortunately, uh, there's a, a variety of threat vectors that we face. And so getting to the bottom and finding out what is actually the culprit of so much of this stuff, it, it's vitally important. It's vitally important. If it is gene therapy, then we have a, a host of other issues that we need to address. And if it's nanotechnology, well, then that presents an entirely different way of looking at this stuff. And so a couple of the other research papers, this was not in the original printing, but I've added them recently because it's very important kind of dissecting and, and uh, really understanding the virology issue. And so the first one is a new coronavirus associated with human respiratory disease in China. And that's by Fan Wu et al. This is the scientific paper that the that proffers the discovery of the SARS-CoV-2 genome. Except when you read the paper, it will admit that this is all a computer simulation. That the vast majority, something like 37 out of 30,000 of the DNA pairs were from an actual tissue sample. The rest was created by a computer. The CDC has admitted this. You know, Fan Wu et al. talks about this. The synthesizing of this genome was not from any kind of sample. It was from a computer model. And so that kind of dovetails into HIV, a virus like no other by the Perth group, a, uh, a research team that I have only recently been exposed to, but I have to highly recommend uh, some of their papers. And uh, these were the original HIV dissidents, and now a lot of them have become COVID dissidents because it's basically the same scam. I recommend, uh, I know George Hobbs on The Fact Hunter has done several episodes on this topic. I recommend if, if you're not familiar with some of these issues and kind of the, the history of the AIDS scam, I, I highly recommend going to The Fact Hunter and looking through his catalog and finding those episodes um, because they are just, uh, George does excellent work on doing these kind of deep dives and I, I, I highly recommend his podcast. And so the other big paper here, A Goodbye to Virology by Dr. Mark Bailey, uh, a bit of an infamous paper within the, you know, the alternative health movement. Uh, I am, I'm not entirely sold on really anyone's theories of how diseases are spread. Uh, but I will, what I will say is that there is a lot about terrain theory that is, I find a, a, a lot of legitimate explanations to phenomenon that we are seeing in witnesses within terrain theory. Now, I'm not, you know, fully on board, right, with, well, there's no, there's no bacteria. I know there's some people that, you know, it's like, they got to have these really extreme dichotomies. And it's either, you know, 100% this way or 100% that way. Well, I mean, there's just, the more and more you dig into this stuff, the more and more you realize that we really just, we think we have an idea of how the human body works, of how our universe works, of how all these different things work. And we're just, we're just stumbling in the dark here, <laughs> just no other way to put that one. So, uh, addition to those uh, very important research papers, I highly, highly uh, recommend uh, perusing those and digging through those yourself because it's absolutely necessary, uh, particularly that Fan Wu paper, uh, just to read and to see, right, like, this is the proof. This is what we, sh this is how we proved this so-called virus that shut down all of society. I mean, it's a joke. It's absolutely a joke. I don't know how any serious medical expert 
can look at that fan woo paper and be like, yeah, man, this is totally legit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, some of these videos, right, they're not necessarily connected to the topic of gene augmentation or virology, but they are important to establish the framework, right? Like they're not talking about it. Yeah, there is a lot of talk about mRNAs in this platform as the future of medicine. But when you go to and listen to the World Economic Forums, the World Health Organizations, when you read their white papers, when you listen to their speeches, when you see what they're talking about, there is some of this being discussed. But much more than that is the discussion of nanotechnology, of the Internet of Things, of the Internet of Medical Things, of injectable biosensors and medical devices that will be able to monitor us on a 24-7 basis, essentially. And so a couple of the videos that we have attached here is uh, some very important people and thought leaders in this arena, right? What is called, uh, you know, transhumanism or uh, the singularity, the merger of humans and machines and eventually AI. Uh, one of the big ones is Yuval Noah Harari. Now, I, I assume that a lot of my listeners and readers are familiar with him, but if you're not, then this is, I mean, this is perhaps one of the most chilling videos you'll ever watch in your life. It's called Will the Future Be Human? It's a, a speech by Mr. Harari at the World Economic Forum. And I mean, it's a psychopathic, evil, totalitarian. These words truly struggle to describe the level of monstrosity that's on display here. And I mean, in very cold and clinical language, this man discusses the end of humanity and this, this crowd here at the World Economic Forum you know, the so-called thought leaders are just eating it up, eating it up. So if you're not familiar with Mr. Harari and some of his work, <laughs> quote unquote, I, uh, <laughs> I use that term rather loosely. If you're not, if you haven't watched his speeches, this is, if nothing else, this is the speech to watch because he, he lays out the future of what we have in store if we do not do something here. And very soon, the, the window of opportunity where we're going to be able to shed this yoke is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so another big proponent of transhumanism, a longtime proponent of this transhumanist agenda is Ray Kurzweil. And he has talked about and pioneered and helped in the discovery of this, the merger of humanity, our brains with mechanical uh, interfaces and devices, and eventually getting to the point where all of humanity is going to be like in a Borg-like hive mind. I mean, predictive programming, absolutely a very real thing. They've worked very hard at inculcating this idea of all of us being connected, you know, oneness. That's something, a phrase that these people love to use. And then so the, the last video here in the further research section, uh, some of these are uh, shorter ones, you know, not as long. This is by uh, Nicholas Negroponte. He is a computer scientist and architect. And he has been very influential in this movement as well. And he has been pioneering and discussing for, I don't know, decades at this point, right? Nanobots and their potential and the ability to use them and to be able to control fine motor functions and other uh, mental capabilities through these nano machines and nano robots, which again, as I've discussed in the Borg Initiative and so many other articles now at this point, uh, 
this is not a, a maybe thing. This is not a, in a couple years, we might be able to do this. This is very, very old technology, honestly, very old technology. And so to, to reach some of the conclusions that I have, I, you just, you got to cut through a lot of the BS here. You got to cut through the smoke. You got to cut through the chaff and the countermeasures here, right? The obfuscations, the fog of war. And it is so vital. Truly, the layman does not appreciate how much of warfare is not a physical thing. Warfare is first and always a mental thing. And to defeat an enemy, it is not enough to defeat him on the battlefield. Because if in his mind he is not defeated, then he will continue to fight. And it doesn't matter how many defeats he suffers on the battlefield. Because the will to fight is everything. And so the fact that we continue to see so many psychological operations run on us from just a continual and habitual basis. Well, if, def if the defeat was total, if there was no hope, if there was nothing we could do, the psychological operations would not be necessary. So when in, once an enemy is defeated in his mind, then he will be defeated on the battlefield. And before an enemy is defeated in his mind, then there is no, there can be no victory, no true long-lasting victory. I mean, just look at the Afghans for a perfect example of this, or the Irish, or a variety of guerrilla movements throughout history. The American Revolution. I mean, defeat after defeat after defeat. Not a whole lot of big battlefield victories that you can point to for the Taliban. The early years of the American Revolution, plagued by these setbacks and, you know, just disastrous defeats. And yet, they persisted. Why? Because in their minds, they had not been defeated. And so this is one of the most important aspects of psychological operations of the, of the fifth generation warfare, of the information war that we find ourselves engaged in. I mean, really in any battle, in the spiritual battle, it shows as important. You must never accept defeat. Once you have given up hope, once you have given up the capability, then you truly are defeated. So without further ado, I'll be reading from my September 15th, 2023 article, Chaff and Countermeasures. Quote, Chaff are small, thin pieces of metal which are shot out of an airplane or warship. These thin strips of metal make it harder for enemy radar to detect where the plane or ship is. The thin strips of metal also make it harder for radar-guided missiles to hit the plane or warship. The chaff tricks the enemy and helps to keep the plane or warship safe. From Wikipedia, end quote. The realm of psychological operations, or PSYOPs, is a multifaceted arena, one where the intricacies of human cognition and perception converge with the subtle art of manipulation. And these operations represent a delicate dance between information dissemination, influence peddling, and the deliberate shaping of attitudes and behaviors. At its core, PSYOPs harnesses the power of psychology to achieve strategic objectives 
whether in the military, political, or commercial realms. In parallel, obfuscation, a tactic that is synonymous with PSYOPs, employs sophisticated techniques to obscure, confuse, or mislead, adding a necessary layer of intrigue to the world of information warfare. The crux of psychological operations lies in the recognition that humans are not solely driven by logic and rationality. Our thoughts and actions are deeply influenced by emotions, biases, and perceptions. In this intricate interplay, PSYOPs practitioners seek to exploit these cognitive nuances, aiming to sway public opinion, incite fear, or rally support for a cause. Look no further than your social media feed to see these operations in action on an hourly basis. It is, in essence, the strategic manipulation of minds, blending elements of psychology, communication, and information dissemination with ancient forms of witchcraft. Psyops and mass manipulation is an art form our rulers have perfected long ago. Central to the world of psyops is the concept of obfuscation, i.e. chaff and countermeasures. Obfuscation involves the deliberate act of concealing or muddling information, rendering it difficult to discern or interpret what is actually true. It is akin to weaving a complex tapestry of disinformation, obscuring the truth beneath layers and layers of occult deceit. The intrinsic need for psyops to be cloaked in voluminous layers of obfuscation should be apparent. Otherwise, what good is the psyop? And the arsenal of psychological warfare, obfuscation, serves as a potent tool to sow confusion, paralyze decision-making processes, and manipulate perceptions in a modern war that has touched every aspect of our societies. Chaff and countermeasures are essential elements of the fog of war in the cognitive battlefield, a place where clarity is elusive, trust is scarce, and uncertainty reigns supreme. To fully grasp the nuances of psychological operations and fifth-generation warfare, one must delve into the wide array of intricate tactics employed. These tactics encompass a diverse array of strategies, including disinformation campaigns, limited hangouts, controlled opposition, rumor mills, and even the manipulation of visual and auditory stimuli. In the modern era, the digital realm has become a fertile ground for psyops, the spread of fake news, quote-unquote, social media, Manipulation campaigns and deepfake technologies serve as prime examples of obfuscation techniques within the digital realm. Victor Marchetti, former deputy director of the CIA, describes a limited hangout as, quote, spy jargon for a favorite and frequently used gimmick of the clandestine professionals. When their veil of secrecy is shredded and they can no longer rely on a phony cover story to misinform the public, they resort to admitting and sometimes even volunteering. Some of the truth while still managing to withhold the key and damaging facts in the case. The public, however, is usually so intrigued by the new information that it never thinks to pursue the matter further. End quote. The alleged pandemic of 2020 serves as a fitting testament to the power of this particularly potent form of mental warfare. Consider the still ongoing debate surrounding the alleged origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, giving rise to two prominent narratives, 
both of which are limited hangouts. The lab leak theory and the natural evolution theory. These dueling narratives, driven by different degrees of evidence and interpretations, have spurred intense discussions among scientists, policymakers, and the public. Unsurprisingly, these seemingly opposing viewpoints can be seen converging toward a Hegelian synthesis, with both theories positing that this alleged contagion was something that must be feared, whether it came from natural or synthetic processes, with the obligatory China bad thrown in for good measure. Ignore the inconvenient fact that for much of the world, excess deaths were no higher in 2020 than the previous five years. If the virus must be feared, then we require novel therapies to treat a novel contagion. The lie is never the point. It's what the lie gets you to believe. That is always the point. It is these limited hangouts that have left countless multitudes spellbound, utterly oblivious to the true nanotechnological threat in our midst. Look no further than the limited hangouts of the RNA, gene therapy, and spike protein narratives to see how effective these countermeasures have been in obfuscating the actual forces at hand. I'm sure this is surprising to hear for many, and that is because you have been purposely bombarded with a barrage of half-truths and misstatements, dazzled with possibilities and potential, yet utterly devoid of any demonstrable proof. But gene editing, aka gene therapies, and their ability to turn our cells into permanent spike protein factories is hardly a proven fact. Firstly, we must verify whether intact RNA, of either the modified or messenger variety, is present in sufficient quantities to actually be effective. The European Medicines Agency data from 2021 shows an alarming trend, finding, quote, a significant difference in percentage RNA integrity slash truncated species, end quote, between the clinical batches and proposed commercial batches, from around 78% to 55%. These highly variant batches have been noted in major medical journals, such as vaccine, as soon as fall of 2021. For context, less than 95% integrity is an ineffective treatment according to their clinical standards. It should be evident to anyone who has delved into the original scientific paper presented as evidence for the existence of coronaviruses that the spike protein is essentially an artificial construct. The first spike protein was derived from the staining patterns of arbitrarily selected particles, which are then used to represent the alleged virus, quote-unquote. The CDC admitted in 2020 that the original SARS-CoV-2 genome was largely assembled from a viral computer database, with just 0.001% of the genomic pairs, a mere 37 out of 30,000, obtained from actual tissue samples. Quite simply put, the CDC has rather brazenly admitted that the original viral genome called SARS-CoV-2 is a computer simulation. It is this seriously shaky foundation that all subsequent C-19 research, quote-unquote, has been built upon. That simulated genome then served as the control for the infamous PCR tests that led to the shutdown of our societies. 
even the serial murderer, Dr. Fauci, has admitted to the ability for the PCR test to be grossly misused in this fashion. Quote, If you get a cycle threshold of 35 or more, the chances of it being replication confident, i.e. accurate, are minuscule. You almost never can culture virus from a 37 threshold cycle. So I think if someone does come in with 37, 38, or even 36, you gotta say, you know, it's just dead nucleotides, period. Dr. Anthony Fauci, end quote. For reference, the FDA recommends a cycle threshold of 40 or less for positive PCR tests. According to a study done by Jafar et al., when the cycle threshold is 35 or above, the false positive rate rises to 97%. Again, per Fauci's own words, what we have witnessed the last three years is nothing less than a monumental fraud. The Portuguese courts found that the PCR test, quote, is unable to determine beyond reasonable doubt that such positivity result corresponds, in fact, to the infection of a person by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, end quote. Indeed, a 97% false positive rate is not proof of anything, and it is a sick joke to pretend otherwise. This PCR hocus-pocus is what almost all bacterial, antibody, and viral diagnostic testing is based upon. Yet another dialectical dilemma that has been proffered to those within the alternative health movement is the dispute over whether mRNA, or modified RNA, or mod RNA, is present within the injections. Mod RNA vaccines are said to introduce synthetic RNA sequences altered from their natural state to encode specific proteins in the cell. These tailored sequences are designed to simulate an immune response, effectively training the body to recognize and defend against particular pathogens. This precision approach has been hailed by researchers as a breakthrough in vaccine development, offering the potential to combat diseases with remarkable specificity. At the Epoch Times, an outlet funded by the CIA-backed Falun Gong, covered this very topic in April of 2023. Quote, Today, many more of us have heard of mRNA as both the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines use messenger ribonucleic acid, or mRNA, as the active ingredient. At least, that's what we've been told. In fact, RNA-based vaccine technology utilizes modified RNA, not mRNA. This applies to the COVID-19 vaccines and all vaccines currently in the research and development stages. Because mRNA is so fragile that the human immune system will destroy it within a few minutes, mRNA can't be effective on its own. Therefore, the current technology was made possible only after stabilizing our mRNA. The result is modified RNA. Furthermore, modified RNA-based vaccines, quote-unquote, aren't vaccines but gene-based injections that force healthy cells to produce a viral protein. From RNA-based vaccine technology, the Trojan horse didn't contain mRNA, by Klaus Steger, PhD, end quote. Conversely, mRNA vaccines are said to employ unaltered, naturally occurring messenger RNA to instruct cells to produce specific proteins, such as the alleged spike protein found on the surface of certain viruses. And these vaccines utilize the body's natural machinery to elicit an immune response, 
replicating the process that occurs during a viral infection. While both share the objective of training the immune system to combat pathogens, the former involves precise genetic manipulation to tailor the immune response, while the latter relies on the innate processes of our biology. This tension prompts a critical inquiry. If we can modify RNA to achieve precise immune responses, could we extend this technology to edit or manipulate other genes within our DNA? The Hegelian synthesis once again emerges as we contemplate the possibility that both modified RNA vaccines and mRNA vaccines serve as theoretical gateways to genetic manipulation. No matter where you fall on this dialectical spectrum, by agreeing to their premise, you tacitly accede to the idea that our DNA can be permanently altered on a fundamental level. Quote, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Psalms 139, verses 13-16. The origins of CRISPR can be traced back to the late 1980s, when Japanese researchers first uncovered unusual patterns in the DNA of E. coli bacteria. These mysterious repeats, resembling palindromes, left scientists puzzled until the early 2000s, when the puzzle pieces began to fall into place. In 2005, a group of scientists, led by Francisco Mojica, bestowed the name CRISPR upon these enigmatic sequences, marking a significant milestone in their recognition. However, it wasn't until 2012 that CRISPR's true potential was unleashed. Jennifer Dudna and Emmanuel Charpentier made a historic breakthrough by discovering how CRISPR could be harnessed as a revolutionary gene-editing tool. They identified a protein called Cas9, capable of acting as molecular scissors, snipping DNA at specific locations as dictated by a guide RNA molecule. Or so they say. The largest issue to tackle on the topic of gene editing is the exceedingly complex logistical problem of rewriting one's DNA in toto without provoking a hideously lethal immune response. The average adult has 30 trillion cells in their body, and our cells are fully refreshed every 7 to 10 years, depending on the cell type. Blood cells refresh approximately every 90 days, for example. While their technology platforms have demonstrated the technical capability of infecting human cells with foreign proteins or DNA, that is worlds of difference between creating a cell resilient enough to evade the body's natural immune response to what it sees as mutated, i.e. cancerous, genes. And there are a host of issues that currently plague CRISPR and gene therapy technologies in humans. Fundamental issues at that, and ones which have yet to be addressed in a clinical or laboratory setting. So far in human clinical trials, gene therapies have largely failed to produce any results. In 2016, the first CRISPR clinical study in humans was conducted in China. P. 
CPD-1 knockout T-cell therapy was administered to different patient groups with aggressive forms of lung cancer. The primary focus of the trial was on safety, and the treatment led to mild to moderate adverse events in every single patient. Additionally, there were no notable reductions in tumor size across the cohorts within a three-month time frame. In fact, the tumors grew rather significantly. The study also examined overall survival rates, with varying survival times amongst the subjects, ranging from 13 weeks to 29 months. The average survival time for these patients after their treatment was about a year, no different than that of the average survival rates for metastatic lung cancer. This trial was an abject failure, and subsequent CRISPR trials in humans have fared no better. CRISPR, truly gene editing as a whole, continues to face the insurmountable hurdle first identified in clinical studies in 2018. Our immune systems identify these cells as cancerous and destroys their treatments, quote-unquote, faster than they can propagate. Quote, A much hope is being pinned on the potential of gene editing using the CRISPR gene scissors method as a crucial part in the precision medicine of the future. However, before the method can become hospital routine, several hurdles need to be overcome. One of those challenges is associated with how cells behave when subjected to DNA damage, which CRISPR gene editing causes in a controlled fashion. Damage to cells activates the protein P53, which acts as the cell's first aid, quote-unquote, response to DNA damage. It is also already known that the technique is less effective when P53 is active. At the same time, however, a lack of P53 can allow cells to start growing uncontrollably and become cancerous. In over half of all cancers, the gene for P53 is mutated and thus unable to protect against uncontrolled cell division. From New Findings on the Link Between CRISPR Gene Editing and Mutated Cancer Cells. End quote. CRISPR has consistently shown to increase the odds of cancerous mutations precisely because it targets areas of the human genome that are most prone to these P53 mutations. Our immune system plays a significant role in fighting cancer, which naturally poses a large problem for any kind of treatment that is reliant upon those mutated cells propagating. The very fact that the first FDA-approved gene augmentation therapy, Luxterna, is a prescription drug, as opposed to a one-time treatment, further elucidates the cunning sleight of hand that has been employed here. Additionally, human trials have shown robust immune responses to Cas9 proteins used in CRISPR editing. Quote, the most widely used homologs of the Cas9 protein are derived from the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus and Streptococcus pyogenes. Based on the fact that these two bacterial species cause infections in the human population at high frequencies, we look for the presence of pre-existing adaptive immune response to their respective Cas9 homologs, SA-Cas9 and SP-Cas9. To determine the presence of anti-Cas9 antibodies, we probed for the two homologs using human serum and were able to detect antibodies against both, with 79% of donors staining against SA-Cas9 and 65% of donors staining against SP-Cas9. Upon investigating the presence of antigen-specific T-cells against the two homologs in human peripheral blood, 
we found anti-SA Cas9 T cells in 46% of donors. Together, this data demonstrates that there are pre-existing humoral and cell-mediated adaptive immune responses to Cas9 in humans, a factor which must be taken into account as the CRISPR-Cas9 system moves forward into clinical trials. From identification of pre-existing adaptive immunity to Cas9 protein in humans, by Charles Worth et al. End quote. This study reveals yet another hurdle that this or any other gene editing technology must overcome if they are to be based upon viral and bacterial vectors. Of course, it would be impossible to fully address this issue without discussing the infamous case of successful quote-unquote gene editing in two Chinese twins. The New Yorker ran a shockingly good article on just this subject a few weeks ago. Quote, In November 2018, Antonio Regalado, an investigative journalist at MIT Technology Review, discovered data that JK's lab had uploaded to a Chinese registry for clinical trials. Believing that the data might indicate the existence of an edited human fetus, Regalado sent it to Fyodor Ernov, an expert on gene editing for verification. Quote, I did not want to open that file, Ernov told me. I'm like, please, please, no, nobody's that crazy, end quote. He shuddered, remembering the moment that his fear was confirmed. Quote, I'm like, life will never be the same again, end quote. A few days later, a scientist from around the world prepared for a gene editing conference in Hong Kong. JK released a series of YouTube videos announcing the birth of a set of twins edited as embryos with CRISPR. A slim, nervous-seeming man in a pale blue shirt, he looked earnestly into the camera and said, Two beautiful little Chinese girls named Lulu and Nana came crying into the world, as healthy as any other babies. He went on to explain how, when each was only a single cell, he had used CRISPR to delete CCR5. I understand my work will be controversial, he said, but I believe families need this technology and I'm willing to take the criticism for them. From The Transformative, Alarming Power of Gene Editing by Dana Goodyear. End quote. This critical point cannot be overstated. This successful quote-unquote gene editing occurred at the single cell level. This is not even proof of a child, let alone an adult, having their DNA fundamentally changed through gene therapy. This is merely a demonstration that whatever changes were made to the genome were small enough to not interfere with the children being brought to term. While the twins are almost five years old now, it has not been demonstrated that they have a particular immunity to HIV, the disease that JK was trying to immunize the twins against. While they were not born with HIV, it has simply not been sufficiently demonstrated whether this treatment, quote-unquote, was actually successful or not. It also remains to be seen what health problems, if any, these girls develop. Lastly, it is unclear whether they can successfully reproduce, or what other unknown consequences will manifest themselves later on in life. Gene therapy is hardly as settled a science as its proponents, and even detractors, give it credit for. In 2020, the first in vivo CRISPR studies were conducted in humans, with decidedly mixed results. 
the inhalable administration of modified RNA vaccines, quote-unquote, have been tested as recently as 2023. It has so far, quote, failed to produce sufficient protein to improve lung function in cystic fibrosis patients, end quote. Or in other words, they failed. Given the wildly unforeseen consequences that early CRISPR and gene editing therapies have produced, a true risk-benefit analysis cannot be properly given. Therefore, it is strictly impossible for these trials to comply with the ethical standards laid out for medical experimentation in the Nuremberg Code. Quote, But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. From the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 38. End quote. Chemical analysis of these injections have repeatedly shown that while whole mRNA slash modRNA is scarce within the vials, graphene oxide, aluminum, and other heavy metals are present to a shockingly high degree. On June 24, 2021, La Quinta Columna, led by biostatistician Ricardo Delgado and Dr. Jose Luis Saviano, unveiled a collection of photographs showcasing the results of extensive analyses conducted by their collaborative research team. These analyses involved employing various identification techniques to meticulously quantify the constituent elements of 2,100 vials of the so-called mRNA vaccines. The findings were nothing short of astonishing, and the presence of graphene oxide within the vials was unequivocally demonstrated by their team. In September of 2021, the Japanese rollout of the Moderna vaccine was halted after stainless steel was found in the vials. On August 16, 2022, Dr. Daniel Nagase analyzed a batch of both Pfizer and Moderna vials that were sent to Canada. After a thorough chemical analysis of the components, he failed to find any nitrogen or phosphorus. I'll let Dr. Nagase explain why this finding is so significant. Quote, X-ray spectroscopy didn't detect any nitrogen or phosphorus. So if those complex shapes, that rectangle with all the dots arranged in a grid, were the result of some kind of biological process, then there should be nitrogen and phosphorus there in addition to carbon and oxygen. Because every living thing, whether it's a virus, plant, or animal, is made up of proteins that contain nitrogen, carbon, oxygen, and phosphorus. End quote. Perhaps the reason we cannot find organic compounds within a great deal of these injections is because the true threat is not organic in nature. That being said, I do not discount the possibility that certain batches in this mass experiment could have contained gene editing technology. However, if vast swaths of our cells were now spike protein factories, as so many are claiming, we would be seeing cancer on a truly apocalyptic scale. In the labyrinth realms of psyops, transhumanism, and nanotechnology, we find ourselves traversing a multifaceted landscape, one where the boundaries of reality, perception, and scientific exploration blur. At its core, psyops is underpinned by obfuscation, where layers of disinformation narratives obscure the truth of the matter at hand. 
and the arsenal of psychological warfare, this tactic becomes an essential element, paralyzing decision-making processes and plunging the cognitive battlefield into a perpetual fog of uncertainty. It has proven so decisively effective, most of us are still arguing whether the COVID virus came from a lab or a pangolin, instead of asking where they got the alleged COVID genome to test against in the first place. The regime also knows that when they attack something, half of us will flock to defend that thing purely because our enemy is attacking it. Now, they banked on just that reaction throughout this entire charade. PSYOPs, the art of wielding influence through information, presents a nuanced dance between the complexities of human psychology and the orchestrated manipulation of perceptions. It serves as a reminder that our thoughts and actions are not purely rational, that they are inexorably intertwined with emotions, biases, and the lens through which we perceive the world. These operations unfold daily in the digital sphere, where obfuscation becomes a strategic tool to sow confusion, hijack public opinion, or foment support for divergent causes, both for and against. This age-old stratagem, seamlessly blending psychology, communication, and information dissemination, is a testament to the psychotically depraved nature of our rulers. The idea that our cells can reproduce the spike protein ad infinitum is a seriously dubious one in light of the realities of the human immune system, ones which we have thoroughly explored in this essay. There are fundamental issues that must be addressed with this technology platform, and we are not anywhere close to addressing them. There's been a great deal of theory, potentials, patents, and promises, but very little in the way of actual proof. After an exhaustive analysis of the clinical trials and current state of gene therapy, it is hard for me to describe the gene editing spike protein slash mRNA narratives as anything other than devastatingly effective limited hangouts. CRISPR and gene editing is still a highly experimental field, one in its infancy. On the other hand, nanotechnology has a proven track record in history spanning some 60 years. IBM is creating two nanometer-wide computer chips, and incredibly sophisticated computers are already running at the nanoscale. Since the nanomaterials my team and I have identified are capable of passing through the body's protective membrane barriers, such as the blood-brain barrier, these materials would naturally be expected to impact every part of our bodies. The scientific literature cited in The Forced Evolution of Humanity lays out this truth quite clearly. The wound patterns attributed to the spike protein and the RNA gene therapies can largely be explained via exposure to nanomaterials such as chitosan, cadmium, and graphene oxide. Unfortunately, the fog of war still lies thick in the air of our national discourses preventing all but the most determined from discerning the truths of the assault we face. The regime's psychological chaff and alchemical countermeasures have certainly done their job.